Second Peter. That's not a surprise, isn't it? Chapter 1, and we go to verse 5. Here we were last week. We returned there again. How to be sure. How to be certain. How to know that I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. We deal with a number of things this morning, but of all of them that I'm most concerned about is that you might know how to have that assurance as a Christian. So let's stand together and let's read God's word. We're picking up in Peter's letter. He's promised that God's already provided everything we need for life and godliness. It's all there. But in light of that, it's not sit back and do nothing. It's just the opposite. He says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness with love. For if these qualities are yours, and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, by the way, in the New Testament, when this Peter says brothers, he means brothers and sisters. It's all of us, okay? There's no confusion, right? Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for your people gathered to meet you, to open our hearts, knowing that even that is your work of grace, so that we can hear, so that we can trust, so that we can yield, so that we can repent, so that we can encourage, so we can be directed in our life for you. As we worship this morning, we are so thankful for brothers and sisters across our city and our world who worship you today. We're thankful for those that our life is connected with directly through our church who are serving you faithfully around the world this morning. I'm mindful to lift up those two families that are so much a part of our life that um, through the connections we've had and through the testimonies they've given here who've just been taken out of Afghanistan recently. Thank you for their safety, but Lord, the turmoil it creates for them and then the fellow believers, the little churches and the the work of Christ that's begun there, we pray for its power and its impact to continue, that in the seeds of perhaps even persecution, it will grow as never before. A great victory would be won. A great victory for the kingdom of God. And Lord, just as we need that in those places that seem so strange and so far and so dangerous, open our eyes to the danger of the world we live in every day and the urgency of this hour to be good soldiers in the cause of Christ. We lift people we love. Some of them are sitting around us in this very building who need to come to faith in you and experience life in you. And we know that's got to be your work, and we ask you to do that work today. And we ask you to do a work in our hearts that we could be certain of who we are in Christ. And the difference it makes might become obvious for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. We talked about these uh, virtues, and I gave you a funny, silly, ridiculous picture to help you remember. I didn't think it was really helpful. I, these things have never worked before me. 
But I, I noticed last Sunday night in church conference, I was trying to call him up, and I thought of that silly picture. And sure enough, you're uh, four very klutzy submarine sailor guys buying lifesavers. Uh, those, those words actually helped me get this list of these qualities of faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness, brotherly kindness and love. We briefly talked and tried to define them very briefly, those qualities that are found here in verses 5 through 7. We know that there are lists like this throughout the New Testament. They're never exactly the same. They usually have some similarities, some traits on some of them aren't on others. But uh, they're all giving the message that if you're in Christ, if you've been saved, it's expected, it's to be the norm that the life we live, the way we live, the character, what starts to come out of the whole of our lives is a very different thing being transformed by Christ. Um, if you've been saved, it's just expected that, of course, you won't continue to live like you would have lived if Christ had not been in your life. Now, I want to give a, just an overview of, of what these, I think, are about, what they're meant to do in our life. Uh, and I was going to do it through a book. It's a book that I located on Amazon. I heard it from another pastor uh, called Glinda's Long Swim. And I, was, I tried to buy that book so I could use its story. But I'll do the next slide. You see how much that little children's book cost. Ah, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. So the guy I heard about that book from was John Piper. He used it to illustrate the point that I think needs to be made here. And so we're just going to use his synopsis. Will that be okay? It's like I couldn't afford 60 bucks to do it the other way. For some of you who are boaters and fishermen and like to go out in the ocean, pay attention. This may have double meanings for you. A true story. Linda and Robert Lennon were four miles off the coast of Florida. They were fishing alone in their yacht. How many of you have a yacht? Any yachts? Yachts? Maybe some of you do. Linda took a swim, and she found the current had carried her too far out from the boat. Her husband heard her crying out, and without thinking, he dove in to rescue her. It's then that he realized that that same current was carrying him out, and he was not strong enough to overcome it. Now, he was a champion swimmer. But she was not. And so in desperation, they made a plan. He would swim against that tide, doing everything he could to keep the boat within view until the tide would change and he would be able to get to the boat and turn things around. She, in the meantime, not strong enough to swim like that, would save her strength and just float and let the tide carry it where it would. And then when he got to the boat, he would come get her. There was nothing else to be done. For six hours, he fought the tide. It was just at the moment that he thought the boat was about to go over the horizon, he was about to lose it, that the tide shifted and began to turn him around and carry him to the boat, which he finally got to totally exhausted. By that time, the sun had set. He sent out the emergency warnings and signals to everyone he could and himself began to futilely search for his wife. He searched through the night, but he found nothing. The next day, the search parties of others were there were arrived, searching and they found his wife. She was 20 miles from where this event had first happened. And she was alive. It's an incredible story. That's what they call these, the incredible series of stories. Now, Piper's point, and I think the point that, that we ought to see in this passage, is that Peter, that's trying to make to us this morning, before we say anything else about it, is that Christians who just float never stay in the same place. If you're just floating, if you've, if you've gotten to a place and now you're just going to cruise and put it in neutral, that's not going to work. 
We are called to apply diligence. Diligence so that we can bear the fruit of faith. Diligence so that we don't get ourselves into a mess. Diligence because it's sometimes even to stand still means a fight every day. The tides of this world, of its influences, and of temptation are so strong. And so making efforts because of Christ and who he is and what he's promised me, in those strengths I do all I can to grow in virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And I do that fight for those things because they're not just frosting on a cake. They're not just a little extra maybe I want to add and goose up my Christian life. They are absolutely indispensable if I'm to live anything like the Christian life I ought to live. If that man, Robert, had not given with all of us might swimming against that tide, that boat would have gone out of sight, his wife would have drowned, and everything would have been lost. Now here's my point to you this morning. We do not judge, we do not analyze the condition of our Christian life based just on how close a person is to heaven. The real test of what's real in your life as a Christian is how hard are you swimming? How hard are you fighting? How much do you find yourself engaged in the determination to become like Christ? The determination, the proof that Christ is real in your life is that he puts within you that which causes you to make every effort to advance the qualities of Christ. That's what he's saying, I think, long and short, in 5 and 7. Different lists, but they're similar all over the New Testament. His starts with faith, where it always starts, it ends with love. They almost all start the sentence the same way. Now, we come to verse 8, and we get to what I call the big if. Here's the if. He says, if these qualities are yours, and if they are increasing, in other words, it's not a given that they are, but if they are, if you see those qualities in your life, And if they're growing, they're increasing, then if, but what if they're not there? What if they, you don't see any real evidence of that, and you certainly don't see that they're increasing in your life, what are we to make of that? It seems to me if you simplify it to its very simplest way, there's come down to two possibilities. The first one is you're not saved at all, perhaps. Maybe your faith, whatever it is, is a counterfeit faith. You've really never known the co-Christ. That's a real possibility. The New Testament warns about it. Before we finish this morning, I'll get back to that one. But I want to take us to the second possibility. Maybe you have been truly saved. You are a child of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if these things are not growing, if you are not diligent in becoming this person that Christ wants you to be, then you are going to be, you may very well already be, ineffective and unfruitful in this knowledge you have of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that it's the second possibility, the second scenario that's on Peter's mind. That's exactly what he's speaking to when he writes these words. Again, verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember when Peter speaks of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not speaking of doctrinal knowledge or just intellectual knowledge. He's talking about relational knowledge. I believe he's saying here, those who've had a real knowledge, that is, they've met this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. They know him. And yet what they have known about him, what they've experienced in him, has led them to be a place where they're ineffective and unfruitful. What a terrible thing to be ineffective and unfruitful. The word ineffective in other places in the New Testament is sometimes translated useless, idle, lazy, careless. 
course it is. He goes on to describe this person. He says, this, if we're talking about a Christian, and I assume we are here, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Well, of course, he's ineffective. Excuse me, just dry air. I need, I need to get a drink of water. Um, um, I tell you what, I need someone to, I need just some guy, would you come up here and assist me a little bit? I could use a little help. Come on, come on, that'd be fine. I need, I didn't get enough. Would you back, go back there and get that picture? Wait, 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 before you do that. Would you put this on? I think you've had this experience up yeah. here. Put that on, please, and uh, go get me that water and come pour me a little bit more here if you would. I can go get it if I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you saw, I mean, come on. Now, I've got a whole sermon to preach here, so I need you to sort of step it up, but if you could just get there. There you go. I'm really thirsty and I, I really need to get on with this sermon so if you could, could get the water to me I, I'm sorry I, you did your best you did your best but go ahead and take the blindfold off totally ineffective right why because I made him blind. Thank you. I could use some water, actually. Thank you for helping me. If you're blind, of course you're not effective. Of course you can't get the job done. Of course it doesn't work. You're nearsighted, blind. Now, blindness plays a big part, you remember, in the New Testament. Jesus was often dealing with people who were physically blind. He healed so many of them. He also used blindness as a, as a metaphor, as, as a way to speak the spiritual condition of people. He said about the Pharisees who were blind. He said about them, these men who thought that they were the teachers of Israel, that they were the hope of, of the nation, and particularly the things of God. He said, you're ineffective. You, you can't do your job. Luke 6.39, he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Huh. Can't even drink a drink, get a drink of water from a blind man. Will they not both fall into a pit? He says these they're spiritually blind. Luke 6, 41. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Don't you hate those times in your brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't you hate to be those times when you realize that you've been going after someone else's speck and you've missed the log? <laughs> oh, is that humiliating. But it's a blindness probably most of us know about. It's certainly the spiritual blindness the Pharisees suffered from. He called them, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. My mom was here this morning. We, back when I was growing up, we had to wash dishes. And that was a nightly chore, and she cooked the cotton-picking meal. So often my brother and I got to wash and dry the dishes. She did not appreciate it when we washed the outsides of the dishes but didn't get to the insides. That became a big deal. Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're real good. You're doing the outward things, external things, but you don't really do the thorough job. Inwardly, you are you're filthy. You're full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may also be cleaned. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. He'd been blind from birth, and it, it created quite an uproar there in Jerusalem. It upset Pharisees. Jesus said to him, for judgment I came into the world that those who, may not, who do not see may see, and those who may see may become blind. That's you guys 
You think you're helping all these poor people who don't know the Bible like you know it, but in fact, you're the ones who are blind, and I'm going to make them see. He said in verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, oh, we see, we understand, your guilt remains because your blindness is there. To the church at Laodicea, that church that so often we identify contemporary churches with, Jesus says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I've needed nothing. You don't even see it. You don't know it. You're blind to it. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Nearsighted, short-sighted. He goes on to say that these people he's talking about have a kind of amnesia. That's where their blindness is at. They've forgotten their past. They've forgotten the, the marvelous thing that Jesus did in rescuing them. He says, you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. Get together, sing amazing grace, but quite honestly, it's not so amazing to me anymore. Big deal. Not only have they forgotten the past, but they've forgotten the future that is theirs. It's not, they have a blindness to it as well. They've forgotten the past. They, they really don't see the future and know where their real destiny is at. They're just living for right now, this moment, what I can get this. Now, I know there's people like this that, oh, they say, oh, I, I remember my salvation. I remember the past. I, I can tell you where I was at, what happened, and they can talk about it. But, but the way they live and how they've lived since then, for all practical purposes, it might as well not have happened. And a person like this is a person who's going to struggle with the sense of assurance. And we'll talk more about this. There's a difference between the security of the believer that we have in Christ and assurance of the believer. They're very much connected, but there's a difference between those two things. And a person in this condition is, is going to have all kinds of doubt. They're going to really have real reasons to wonder, I wonder if I'm really saved at all. They have no certainty. They have no, no sense that, that my future is secure in Christ. And it's disturbing when you see a born-again Christian find themselves in a state like this. What a mess. Saved, which you can hardly tell the difference between them and someone who's never saved. You can't tell the difference between them and a, and a pretender. In this state, we just look like another evildoer, just like another lost guy. So he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Peter loves this word. That's what he started with, verse 5. He said, make every effort to supplement your faith, applying all diligence. Words used in Hebrews, talking about our assurance. You apply diligence to your following of Christ so you can be assured. Verse six of Chapter 6, verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, that's the same word, diligence, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. If you're going to be certain about your salvation, you need to get busy, diligent, confirming that you are saved. Not earning it, not deserving it, but, but applying what God has given you so that you know it's real in your life that you have been called, that you have been elected. When we read in the New Testament like we do over and over about our calling, about our election, wherever you stand on that, that, that's looking at your salvation from God's point of view, from the eternal point of view, which has always been at work. How do you know, though, that it really happened? How do you know that before the foundation of the world, God saved you, determined to save you? Apply diligence to these things. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your electing Lection, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You see these virtues increasing. You know that Christ is alive in you. 
You know that his grace is real and that he is continuing to work in you and he has saved you. He's called you and elected you for his purpose. But assurance will not flow. It will not happen. You will be filled with doubts. You'll wonder, am I really saved? If all you've got is some memory about some past day where, yeah, I, I checked the box. I signed on the dotted line. I got baptized. Those are all important things. But ever since then, not much has happened. <laughs> not much difference has been seen. You're not going to find assurance because you can remember some point in the past. You're going to be assured in salvation because Christ is working in you now. His life is flowing in you now by the Spirit of God. The way doubts get, get burned off of our hearts, the way they dissipate, is when we walk with Christ. The way you get out of the depression and the fear and the questioning and the despair is by be diligently seeking to move ahead in Christ. Verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't get to heaven. We don't get this eternal kingdom because of what we do. But the way we know that we have it, the way we live for this kingdom, because we know it's coming. And so the way we can pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done now. I mean it because I know that's my destiny. So this is a big deal, this issue of, of assurance. If you don't have it, you miss out, and you are left ineffective. You are left blind. You are left floundering around, not very happy, not very joyful, knowing nothing of the abundance of Christ, and not very effective for what Christ saved you to do. Let me give you a few of, of many reasons why it's important for you to know that you know that you know that you're saved. First of all, I will tell you that it's people who know they're saved who can come to a time like this or can come to your own prayer closet or come and join with fellow believers in a small group and praise God and thank God and really get the joy out of it. If you know you're His, if you know His work in you, it praise flows out of you so naturally. Assurance injects joy into regular, old, ordinary, humdrum, day-in, day-out burdens of life. Because, you know, even those things that sometimes you dread, you have to do every day, you know, they have purpose, and God is at work in them, and there's a, a bigger picture to what he's about. It puts joy into your troubles. We'll say more about that in a moment. I'll tell you what assurance gives you. There's no small thing. It means I know I'm going to heaven. That changes everything you look at everything differently when you know that you're going to heaven and one day you're going to be with your lord and savior you're going to be with your king and you know i've got a responsibility to serve that king right now let me tell you something else insurance assurance gives us it produces in our life an enthusiasm for the gospel an enthusiasm for life it makes us enthusiastic you know who was apathetic who often don't care a great deal, people are full of doubt. They're just not really sure I belong to Christ. I have real reason to wonder. And so, now I've heard people say, I've heard people argue, well, you know, this, this whole business, you, you Baptists and other Christians, you, you look at all those writings of Paul and you, you camp out on that whole thing that, that we're saved forever and that, 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 that our salvation is secure in Christ and, and you stand on that. You know, if you really push that very hard, people just get apathetic. Well, you know how they're going to do. Well, well I'm, I'm saved and, and it's not by my works and I'm saved no matter what. And, and that's going to make people apathetic. It doesn't. Not when you understand, not when you, not when you know that you know you belong to him. It puts enthusiasm for what you're about. The people who are filled with doubts and wondering, I don't even know for sure that I really belong to Christ. They're the ones who struggle with apathy. 
We have an, uh, an old-fashioned cuckoo clock at my house. It's given to us. It's not like that one. It's not that nice, but it runs the way old clocks do, and, you know, you pull the weights up. I've got all those grandkids at my house. They love those chains, and, pull, you know, we're amazing to survive this long. Those weights are, that picture is something like, like the way the Christian life works when we have assurance. Some old Puritan years ago said it like this. Assurance will be as weights to the clock to set all the wheels of obedience running. When I know I am Christ and he is mine and my whole identity is found in what he is doing in me, boy, that changes every day. Assurance enables me to live with contentment. Is there anyone here who hasn't looked around at something, some batter, some point about your life and said, why couldn't I? Why am I missing out on this? Why don't I get that? Oh, I wish we had more. More stuff, more money, more better house, better job. I wish I had that skill. I wish I had that talent. It's so easy to be discontented, to always need something more. And most teenage boys, I want to be a great athlete. I'd like to have been over at the Olympics, you know, winning something. Didn't happen. You have some things in your life you've been there. But you know where you can find contentment? I belong to Jesus. He has a plan. He's made me the way he's made me. He's got his purpose for my life. I'm living in him, and I'm perfectly content because, quite frankly, I'm already rich in him. He'll supply my every need right now, and I will live in those riches for eternity and all that he's got. I can be content. This assurance helps when you mess up, too. When you're stupid and sin wins the day in your heart and life, and you've done things and you're ashamed of them, and you're reminded just what a wretched, miserable failure you are apart from Christ. And you're just so ashamed. And you, you can't even look at yourself in the mirror. Of course, the enemy is always right there. His, his name is the accuser, you know. And he'll come and he'll join in that accusation. He will tell you you're just as lousy. You're worse than you think you are. And there's no way Christ could ever have anything to do. He will lie to you like that. And when I know no matter what, even in my failures, my Savior is still my Savior. His blood covers all of my sin. And he will not give up on me. And I can go running right back to the Lord, which is exactly where the devil doesn't want me to run. But I go right back to him. And he has no power. I find the comfort that I need to stay in the race, to stay in the fight. I'll mention just one more thing here. It's, we can talk all morning about how this affects your life. I'm not afraid to die. <laughs> not afraid to die. And this certainly gets down to the depth of your heart. It produces a joyous, abundant and effective Christians. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, I think at this point, in light of this verse calling us to con confirm our calling and election, we need to make sure what we know what we're talking about here, and I want to contrast this with some other places in the New Testament, particularly with Paul's word, that's sort of similar to this, and we might think we ought to interpret them the same ways, but I don't think we should. You remember Paul, particularly when he wrote to the church at Corinth, there were some real numbskulls in Corinth. I mean, there were, there were some real problems. And in his second letter in our New Testament to the church at Corinth, he wrote to some of them, and he wrote words that sound a little bit like this, that you could easily, looking up, say, quote them alongside what Peter said. But I don't think they're the same thing. When Peter, when Paul wrote to these folks at Corinth, he was writing to people who were consistently living in unrepentant sin. And their sin was being called out. It was being pointed out to them. No less than the apostle himself was calling out to them to turn from it. And they weren't turning. And they weren't even apologizing for it. They seemed to grow stronger in it. 
So Paul writes about them in 2 Corinthians 12, 21. He says, you've been sinning and you've not repented of your impurity, your sexual immorality, your sensuality that you have practiced. And more than that, we, we see them resisting what Paul is telling them about how this is totally incompatible with the life of a Christian. They're resisting repentance. They're saying, no, they're defending what they're doing. And Paul's at the point of saying, they gotta have, these guys need to be excommunicated. And one last plea Paul says to them in 13.5 of 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. He's saying, I, you know, I can never speak for another person for sure, but by all the evidence I see, there's a real possibility you don't know Jesus at all. You never met the Savior. Take the test. Examine yourselves, because I think you're going to fail it. Here's the point. People on their way to heaven who don't hate their sin, who don't fight their sin, who don't think they ought to fight their sin, are deluded. And the last thing they need is for somebody to try to give them assurance. True Christians come, sometimes we hear hard sermons, and we read those many hard passages, those those calling to holiness that we have in Christ, and the warnings about the dangers of sin to to all of us. And we, we sometimes tremble with fear, and we ought to tremble with fear. But as we tremble with fear, because we're His, because we belong to Him, we run to Christ, we turn to Him, and we we come in repentance and say, Oh, God, give me power as never before to kill the sin that still is in my heart. I don't think Peter is speaking to people who he thinks are turning away from the faith, who he thinks have never come to true faith. He's speaking to Christians who need to pay attention and to live in a way regularly, consistently, day by day, that shows and confirms Yeah, Christ is working with me. It's not all fancy, but I can see Christ working in me. None of us are perfect in any of these areas. That's why they have to increase. None of us have completely arrived with them. The point is, we're moving and we're growing. Christ's presence is revealing itself more and more. Over my ministry, there haven't been too many times, probably some that... I failed too, but I've known people who I at one point thought were certainly Christians. They had made all the right confessions, and yet there came a point where their life turned in a direction that was just contrary to the gospel. And it's not just that, but that, that when you would confront them with it, you would challenge them with it, you would plead with them, they would say, no, I, they would start to just justify it. What well, was clearly absolutely antithetical to, to everything that the Christian life is what Christ is and they would defend it and stand on it and make it clear they had no no intention of repenting they didn't care what the Bible said that's a tragic thing that's what they were doing in Corinth I don't think that's what Peter's listeners were doing but he is saying it's important important if you're going to have assurance if you don't want the assurance the sense that you know that you need that if you don't want it to evaporate then you need to with all diligence With diligence, follow Christ. And when you do that every day, your faith will get deeper. Your courage and your your virtuous living, the the willing to step out and do bold things for God as He directs you, you will see that increasing. And the knowledge of Christ will grow richer and deeper. And and it won't just be head knowledge. It'll be the the knowledge of the most wonderful person there is. And your self-control that flows from Christ's self-control will become more powerful and more certain. And you'll stand and you'll endure in the hard places. Places that at one time maybe you would have quit and you would have given up, but now you can stand in Christ. And you will love, you'll love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll even love people who at once you thought you could only hate and you will love them with a way that you don't even understand. 
God says, if you want certainty, if you want assurance, grow in these things. Turn Christ loose in your life. Determine to put him in charge and master over your life and trust him to do this work in you. And he will become more real than ever before. Now, this is sort of the everyday stuff of the Christian life. It's also church stuff. Because there's another way that, that this assurance in us is connected with our life here. To have the assurance that we need, we need each other. And quite honestly, we need not just come and sit in a room together and meet, but we need a real fellowship and a real connection with each other. Hebrews 3 says it like this, Take care, brothers. Speaking to Christians, lest there be any in view, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So when your life starts drifting and starts floating away, something needs to be done about that. And, and God meant for your fellow Christians who, who know you, who you've got enough relationship with, they spot that in you sometimes when you're not willing to spot it yourself. So what does he say in verse 13? Exhort, encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. We talk about it. We're going to talk about it more. But it's never more important ever that you be not just in the church, committed to church, gathering with God's people. I see a lot of the encouragements needed before and after even worship services. But more than that, if there's any way possible, you need to get in a group, someplace where you're meeting people face-to-face and you're accountable to them, where you're together moving up, focusing on the Lord, moving in, caring for each other including even warning each other when we, we sense something going wrong and we're focused on the ministry that God has us as we reach out. We need to be that. It's going to be hard for you to ever have the kind of assurance you need in Christ, to know that I know that I know that I'm saved just if you're trying to live the same Christian life as a solo player. You need the church. It's the body of Christ. What did Paul say? The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. We need each other. And where we meet those needs is in fellowship and relationship and sharing life together. Every group in our church, we must not simply be a Bible study or a meeting one hour a week and think that's what it's about. That is an important part of that, what it's about. But that has to be a deeper life, a life that's shared. We work together. We love together. We share honestly with each other. We, we are a family together. We must be that body of Christ. Okay, very quickly, let me... Let me just walk through these seven qualities. There's one more thing about assurance of salvation. One thing that's essential to it. You're not going to like it, and yet when you see it, I think it's going to be helpful. And I just want to walk through some of these qualities, and I want you to see how essential it is and how when you know that, it changes everything. Let's talk about the quality of virtue. The word virtue is said is that it's, it's doing courageous things. It was the Greek language it had to the idea of stepping out and doing heroic, brave things. They may not be for the show, they may not be for, but they were, they're things that, that, that tax you to do it, but they, they show the, the holiness and the goodness and the quality of Christ in our life. So Paul writes about this, Romans 5, 3, he says, not only that, but we, re- what? we rejoice in our sufferings. Can you imagine going to a movie, some of these hero movies, superhero movies, whatever kind, and you go to the movie, and everything in the whole situation, everything in the whole story is just peachy king. There's no problems anywhere. The world is at peace. There are no bad guys. There's no struggles. There's no fight. Everyone just has a happy time for an hour and an hour and a half. You sit there and watch these people sit around. Where's it? There's no place for a hero in that story, right? There's no place for virtue. There's no place for courage. It's in the trouble. It's in the difficulties. It's in the, the contradictions that all that comes. So he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces 
endurance, and endurance produces character, virtue. Some of you are young in your life with Christ. And you're young, you're like me. You, you had no idea how big the battles were going to be, how hard some of the struggles were, how deeply ingrained some of the sin that's in your heart was going to, to be there and rise up and how it would have to be fought. At the start, we were all, remember we've said over and over, Peter is all over this letter. His life story is all over it. And who among us who have really been serious about Christ haven't at some point in our Christian life been just like Peter? Taking bold stand, will do everything. Jesus, you say, I'm going to deny you. I'll never deny you. Oh, these other losers, they may run, but not me. And then he runs. Then he denies. How many of us haven't confidently at some point in our life promised Jesus that we'd be true and faithful to him and we'd never let those things come? And then one day we see how powerful our sin nature is and how weak our faith is. We discover how sinister and tangled and ingrained our pride is and our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency. A lot of us look at those things in our life and at the beginning we don't even see those things as problems and yet at the heart of our problem. It's in the fiery trials, that, that the, the heat of life that, that works on our life, that, that becomes like a fire that burns those impurities, that, that raises them to the surface, that floats them to the top. So we see our fear and anxiety and anger and jealousy and bitterness and selfishness and our ambition, the way we fear men. You don't see those things until you're, until you're pressed in the hard places of life. That has to be there too if we're ready to grow up in Him. John Newton author of Amazing Grace, but so many other wonderful things, wonderful pastor. I think he would say in his life, as I would say in my life, I've had more questions as a pastor about how do I know that I'm saved? How can I be sure I'm saved? How do I get assurance? He dealt with that all the time. Listen to what he said. He said, we cannot be safely trusted with assurance till we have the knowledge of the evil and the deceitfulness of our hearts, which can be acquired only by painful, repeated experience. That is, our virtue is going to grow when we begin to see the enemy we really have to fight. And it's a terrifying enemy. But when you see just how awful it is and how strong he is, that will in desperation send you running to the cross and you'll find your strength in Christ alone. The faith that we start with is the faith that in the trials becomes bolder. Our virtue becomes refined. Our maturing knowledge begins to show itself in the trials. Self-control becomes stronger. And all of it flows out of this real faith we have in Jesus. So Galatians 2.20 becomes more than a memory verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I live in the flesh, I live by what? I live by faith. The faith that it started. The faith that now in its work in my life is producing virtue and and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly love. Because it's Christ's faith living his life through me. Steadfastness is the same thing. Sticking it out. Not throwing in the towel. You're never going to get that if you don't have trouble, if you don't have hardships. If your heart's not broken. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. You'll never even know you're steadfast until you face the trial. You'll even know that you can stand until you're put there. 
Again, John Newton, assurance grows by repeated conflict, by a repeated experimental, that is the actual experience of proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. When we've brought, been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, when we've given up all hope and suddenly we've been snatched from danger and placed in safety, it's then that these things have been repeated in us a thousand times over, we begin to learn to trust simply in the word and the power of God beyond all and against all appearances. And this trust with habitual and strong bears the name of assurance. Even assurance has degrees. Godliness is the guy of Christ. It's, it's that right attitude, the right respect for, for God. And then because I respect him, I keep the first commandment. I keep the second commandment of loving others as myself. John Newton again, he says, we can have no security from gifts, labors, services, or past experiences. You see, you hear that? This is really important. It's not how gifted you are, how experienced you are, how well you can do certain Christian things that means you're mature and strong in Christ. You may be a great musician, a great worship leader. You may be a natural teacher and can wow people with how you present information. You may be pretty comfortable standing up on a stage and carrying on, you know. That doesn't prove spiritual maturity. That does not prove Christ-likeness. You won't find this assurance in how gifted you are and the things you can do. He says, you're not going to find it there, but you will from the first to the last. Our safety is in the power of the compassion and the faithfulness of our great Redeemer. He says this, we're never more sure, we're never more safe, we never have more reason to expect the Lord's help than when we are most sensible that we can do nothing without Him. I've been here long enough, I surely, I don't remember, but I'm sure I've told the story. As a teenager here in Vero Beach, God had called me to preach. I preached two times in my home church, pretty much read William Barclay's commentary on Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, boy, I just, it was terrible. It was really awful. And some crazy preacher up in Lake City, Florida, got hold of my name. He didn't know me from Adam. He didn't know anybody I knew. He said, he, this guy was crazy. He was just nuts. He was a nuts job. I got to know him, knew him for six years. He was a nut job. And he was crazy in love with Jesus. And he knew how to trust the Lord. He was the pastor of a little church. And he called me up one day. It was in the summer. He said, I want you to come and preach a seven-day revival in my church. I preached two sermons copied out of the book of Barclay's commentary. And they were terrible. But if you want to know how stupid I was, I said, well, sure. And then there I was. Didn't know what to do. Scared out of my mind. And desperate, saying, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. I want to be faithful to you. And I work through just, I don't want to be a fool to, to sort of, how can I, I want to bless, I want to be used, I want to, I want to proclaim the gospel. And that week in that little church, 30, 35 people were saved. Dozens of recommitments of, that really were life-changing. I went back six years in a row to that church. I saw many of those people that were saved year after year. I saw whole families changed. Now, it, was, it wasn't just me. It was a whole lot of people. But I, got a, I was involved in all of that because I was so desperate for Christ. And many times in my ministry, I keep trying to get back to that place, to be that same desperation. If I can just see clearly, it's always that way. And that's what, that's what these things do to us. That's how we, how we grow in these things. That's how this godliness gets produced. And that's where we're safe. When we know everything depends on him. Well, I've been quoting John Newton. You know, he sang, did Amazing Grace stand up with me? They're going to sing Amazing Grace. Just verse 3. 
just verse 3. I don't have any piano player, I don't think, up here. So let me just uh, let's sing. I tend to start high, get ready. Though many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Sit down, I'm not done. Not done, not yet. Close. I did promise you that there were two possibilities. One that I think Peter is talking about here is people who probably are saved, but who need to know how to find the assurance of salvation. But there was the other one. Some people don't have these qualities. They're not growing them because, quite frankly, they were never, they were never saved. They were, they were never born again. Remember, faith has to, faith is a real faith, a living faith has to be a part of this. So he said in verse 5, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. If you don't have your faith to, to add something to, there, none of this is going to work. Faith is where everything starts. Back in verse 1, he says the same thing. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. You say, are you saved? And you say, well, I, I think I would know. I think I'm saved. Yeah, I remember that I got saved. I, I know I was saved. Yeah, I remember back then. The Bible's full of warnings here, folks. The most pressing one is probably the words of Jesus. You know it, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I worked in the nursery. I taught Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I took up the offering. I helped clean the church. I did this and I did this. And and you say, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want to say it again. That the only evidence that you have that you are saved is simply some point in the past when you made a decision. And yes, there is a decision to be made when you choose to follow Christ. I'm hoping that today some of you will decide receive the Lord Jesus Christ and that faith will spring real in your heart but if you make that decision and then there are a thousand, hundred thousand other decisions that flow out of that, you need to look again real careful because something's really wrong it's lovely that someone led you in a prayer back then but if prayers had, had real place in your life ever since I doubt whether that prayer meant a whole hoot to anybody I don't mean that you're sinless I don't mean you haven't had Failures and disasters and mistakes and things that you grieve over. But the point is, do you grieve over it? Do you hate it? Do you desire more than anything to be what Christ has you to be? Do you long to be what Christ wants you to be? And you're in the fight. You grow discouraged because it seems so slow and you failed so many times. But you're in the fight. Because if you're not in the fight, if you're just resting in some false little thing I had long ago and blithely going along, I'm going to tell you it may well be you never met the Savior. That doesn't ring with the New Testament that I read. I mean, it's logical when someone says, look, trust Jesus, sign on the dotted line, do this, do that, and you won't go to hell. Well, who wants to go to hell? That's not a bad reason to turn to Christ and recognize your need for Him. But if that's the only thing that's ever gone on there, you never saw Jesus, you never loved Jesus, you don't, you're not thrilled about Jesus, you never, you know, your heart didn't burn with you because He died for you on that cross and He's risen, He's life for you, and you never saw that. You just said, tell me where to sign up. I, I like insurance and I don't want to go there. 
Bible says once we were blind. But if we come to Christ, now we're seeing the light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, that we were all in that place, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. But when you get saved, he says, God says, let the light shine in the darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Peter says that's how this whole thing works. This power of God gets turned into your life. In in verse 3, everything we need for life and godliness, how do we get it? We get it through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and his excellence. We see him supernaturally. Our eyes are open and we see him and we want him and we want to be like him and we want to give the best of ourselves to him. You've got people you love. You've got children. You've got neighbors. You've got others that you love to see come to Christ. And, and you ought to bear testimony to them. You ought to do everything you can do. But as you pray for them, pray, oh God, open their eyes. Help them see Jesus. Show me my part. Help them to see how wonderful Jesus is and what he offers. We had a Margaret King's funeral yesterday. I wish you could have been here. I hope this is okay. We had a sharing time this we often have. And Brother Ed, I'll never forget and always be thankful for your testimony yesterday. Ed Kirkland, longtime member here. Not a guy that I notice walking to the microphone real often and talking. So he came and he, he told a little bit of the story of how his life interfaced with Margaret's. And said, years ago, I have no idea, it was 20, 30, 40 years ago now. I don't know when it was, but Margaret had come to his house and invited his children to come to church. He saw something in that. He saw something happening there. Out of that, God brought him to church here at King's. And he saw the people of God. He heard the preaching of the word. And his whole heart got opened to the gospel. And changed everything. And how thankful I am for his life and his testimony, his, his willingness. I've heard many times to give testimony to the place of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray... We pray for people who need Jesus, they, that the eyes of their hearts would be open, that they could see, that the blindness would be taken from them, that they would know the hope of the life that they have in Christ and the riches that they could find in Christ. And that's why I preach this morning. For anyone who's here and doesn't have a real, true, genuine faith, who's never been born again, the Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I've been trying to preach to you the word of Christ. You've probably got others who love you. have been trying to get that word of Christ to you. The New Testament, the book of John says, but these things have been written that you may believe, that you have faith, real faith, life-changing faith, faith that, that is a gift of God, but it changes everything, that you might have faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in his name, you may have life in his name. And that can start for you today. It can start for you today. If you understand these words, and if they somehow touch your heart, You're not too old. You're not too young. You're not too anything. You can come to him. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray you would open the minds and eyes of all of us to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray you'd help us see the grace that can cleanse every sin and shame and make us new people. Lord, I pray that you would stir up those who are yours. That you would lift them with their walking in coldness and indifference and apathy and sin. That you'd call them back to you today, back to the fight. And you'd restore to them the certainty that they belong to you. Do that in our midst now, we pray. In Jesus' name.